Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. From lake effect snow bands to destructive tornadoes, today's guest has studied them all. Dr. Karen Kasiba's research is focused on unraveling the intricate dynamics behind some of nature's most dangerous weather. She believes that taking her work into the field is key to helping us better understand and predict severe weather. We'll get an inside look on what it's like to experience a tornado from inside a mobile radar. Plus, we'll discuss one of her latest research endeavors, which took her south of the equator to chase some of the world's most extensive and damaging storms. Dr. Karen Kasiba joins us. Thank you for having coming on Weather Geeks. Thank you for inviting me. Now, you're currently an atmospheric scientist at the Center for Severe Weather Research in Boulder. First of all, tell us what that is. That, that's a <laughs> relatively new organization in the grand scheme of things. Is that correct? I guess newish, but not new for my career. Sure. Um, <laughs> Right. So the Center for Severe Weather Research um, was founded by uh, Josh Werman um, after he uh, left the University of Oklahoma. And what we do and what we've evolved to is that uh, we do several things. So um, we operate uh, several mobile radars, so the Doppler on wheels, you might be familiar with those. Um, We operate those as part of the National Science Foundation. So we maintain them, we innovate, and we bring them out for projects um, that researchers are doing to study all different sorts of weather. Um, And then the other part of what I do is I do my own research. Um, So part of what I'm doing is writing grants and trying to study all sorts of cool weather like tornadoes and hurricanes and, like you mentioned, uh, stuff down in Argentina as well. Yeah, let me just set the stage, give you her credentials, because we're talking to someone that knows her stuff here. So she has a bachelor's degree in physics from Loyola University and a master's in physics and MAT, and I'm going to get you to tell me what that is, and teacher education from Miami University, and then a PhD in atmospheric science from Purdue University, which has a very good atmospheric sciences and meteorology department. Uh, her research has focused on low-level wind structure and tornadoes, supercell storm dynamics, and quantifying the boundary layer winds and hurricane. So we're talking to someone that knows her stuff. That's why the uh, AMS and various others have placed her on important committees. She's been a reviewer for those organizations, etc. So I always like to establish that <laughs> on Weather Geeks, we, we're getting people that know their thing. So talk a little bit about how you kind of got into, I, I like to go there before we really get into the deep right. stuff. How do you get into this field or get, get interested in, in meteorology? Um. Good question. Um, Some of us, I've just sort of been lucky. Um, So as you mentioned, uh, I started out in physics, and I actually had no clue what I wanted to do um, when I grew up. Um, So physics seemed really cool. It obviously explains a lot of things. It had a lot of different places I can go with it. Um, But then as I started going through school, I decided I, you know, wanted to be outside more and sort of study the natural world. And when I was in graduate school, um, I had some opportunities present themselves um, in tornado research, which I was really interested in um, for getting out in the field. Um, But then also really understanding that there's a lot of things that we don't know about severe weather. So there's a lot of things we don't know about tornadoes. There's a lot of things we don't know about hurricanes. And I found it really fascinating that I can get out there and collect data in these and try to move the field forward a little bit. 
Yeah, and, and I, I, I think one of the most recent examples of that is your work that you've been doing, I guess, down in Argentina. Uh, tell us a little bit about this, because this is uh, this is something that, you, I mean, you were just recently there. You wrapped this up in December of 2018. Uh, tell yes. us about this, the remote <laughs> sensing of electrification, lightning, and mesoscale slash microscale processes with adaptive ground observations. Boy, that's just <laughs> screaming for an acronym. Uh, Relampago as well. And I worked at NASA for 12 years, so I know all about them, but tell us about Relampago. Right. I just want to say that was not my acronym. Good, um, even because though we do. That's a long, uh, the <laughs> it's acronym still a good acronym, acronym, but not mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so Relampago actually does mean lightning, I think, in Portuguese. Um, but uh, Steve Nesbitt, who's a professor at the University of Illinois, um, was following up, I think, on a lot of you know his graduate research and things he's been thinking about for a while. Um, and I was lucky to get the opportunity to work um, with him in this project. Um, but basically, um, a lot of researchers have been looking at satellite observations down in South America. Um, there's not a good radar network. There's not a sounding network. There's just not the same type of network that we have up in the States. And satellite observations were really saying that there's, you know, these really big storms, these MCSs, these mesoscale convective complexes. They had high flash rates. They have very tall cloud tops. Um, and if you look at it from satellite radar, uh, you know, they had uh, high reflectivity um, with them. And the big question was, you have all these sort of severe weather parameters from satellite observations, what's actually happening at the surface? Um, because that just wasn't really known. Um, so part of Relampago is really getting down there and getting at the surface and looking at what kind of storms are forming, what hazards are there, um, and then, you know, comparing that to what we sort of see in the United States. Um, Argentina has some unique topography that we don't have in the United States. So the idea that you could still get these really severe storms in sort of a different topographical environment um, was really interesting. So part of it was exploratory, I mean, with you know, directed questions, um, but part of it was also um, you know, doing a comparison between what we get in the United States and what's happening in South America. Now, now with, with Weather Geeks, we have a, a variety of listeners, uh, very much people with backgrounds similar to ours, but then just people a little curious about the weather. So I want to kind of <laughs> speak to those folks for a second. Give us a 101 for those listeners on what, what you mean by what an MCC or an MCS is. Ah, right. <laughs> Sorry. Just throwing out a bunch of acronyms here. Um, and MCS is a mesoscale convective complex. Um, so those are sort of the big, beefy storms uh, that usually produce a lot of rain and cover a lot of area, um, as opposed to, say, a supercell storm, which is more concentrated, um, a small cellular storm, um, but has different hazards associated with it. Uh, so this is just sort of one one type of storm that um, could potentially produce severe weather. Yeah, and for those that are a little bit deeper into weather geekdom, uh, MCCs, uh, these sort of larger sort of subclass of MCSs, I would say, often have very well-defined satellite parameters. Um, Maddox and others from the literature have discussed these as well. Uh, and then you have the mesoscale convective systems. I, I know in some of this research, actually one of my four, or not my former student, but I was on his <laughs> committee at the University of Georgia, Josh Durkee, uh, shout out to Josh Durkee out there at Western Kentucky. Had done some research on these types of systems down in South America as well. So I am somewhat familiar with some of these types of systems, and it's interesting that you all have gone down there and there and down there now, taking some of your sort of unique instrumentation. And that's where I want to pivot to now. What type of instrumentation did you take down there, and what will they tell us? Um, so, yeah, like I said, I mean, really, almost any instrumentation you're bringing down there is new and providing just much more information than they have. Um, their radar network, you know, they don't have that many radars, and they just came online 
gosh, you know, almost a year ago, um, and they're still working on them. So we brought down, um, <laughs> of course, radars. Uh, so we brought down uh, three of our Doppler on wheels uh, X-band radars. Uh, we also really quickly built a C-band radar, um, which <laughs> was fun and exciting, and we operated it for the first time um, down in Relampago. Um, and then uh, soundings, um, surface meteorological observations, so getting just basic state variables. Uh, and then also um, another C-band radar from um, CSU, uh, Colorado State University, uh, also came down there. So a lot of radars, but then just a lot of sort of basic state variables um, from surface abs and soundings. Yeah, and I love I love this discussion. This is what Weather Geeks is tailor-made for. We're going to definitely geek out today. So you hear, hear uh, Dr. Kasiba talking about C-band and X-band <laughs> radars, uh, S-band radars. If you, you pull up a, a, a weather radar, perhaps watch the radar on your news at night, those most likely are going to be what we call an S-band radar system. Uh, we, we basically send out pulses of microwave energy at different wavelengths. I believe the S-band systems are 10 centimeter. The C-bands are 5 centimeter. Is that correct? And then tell us a little bit about what the X-bands are. And then, yes, and then the X-bands are 3 centimeters. Yeah. Um, and why, yeah, do we, so why do we use different wavelengths? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so all these different wavelengths, um, they, there's good and bad with both of them. Um, so like you just mentioned, the National Weather Service radars, those are all S-band radars. So those are all 10 centimeters. And in order to get really good resolution, um, you need to have a dish size um, sort of inversely proportional to your wavelength. So for, or sorry, proportional to your wavelength. So for an S-band radar, um, in order to get a one degree beam, um, you need to have a very large dish. Um, and since our National radar network is stationary. <laughs> it's easy to have a you know really large dish um, to get good resolution. Um, but for doing research, and in particular, if you're trying to move your radar, um, it, you want to go with a smaller wavelength radar. So um, an X-band radar is basically the largest frequency you could use and still get your radar down the road easily. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, and so, I, I was going to say, I worked at uh, NASA Goddard, and I was the deputy project scientist for the uh, Global Precipitation Measurement Mission for a while, and uh, that's a space-borne radar system that has a KA and a KU band <laughs> radar, which is, you know, a, a smaller right. wave, a smaller wavelength than anything we're talking about here, but that's why we had to make them small, because you got to put them on a satellite. Yeah, and then, of course, obviously, there's the problem of, I mean, so S-band, you know, is really great because, um, you know, you could have pretty high transmit power. I mean, you could for other frequencies, too. Um, but uh, you also don't attenuate much, so you're able to see through these really rainy or storms with a lot of hail uh, very easily. As you start getting smaller and smaller wavelengths, um, it gets harder and harder to see the back end of these storms. Uh, your signal attenuates, and you're not able to see past a really high precipitation region or region with lots and lots of hail in it. Yeah, anybody that has uh, satellite television of any kind will know what she means when you talk <laughs> about attenuation whenever it rains and you lose the signal. I want to talk about the sort of, I mean, you've been quoted as saying you're a firm believer, or not quoted, but I, I hear from <laughs> researching uh, the, you in the notes that our producers have provided that uh, you are a firm believer in experiencing the weather from inside a mobile weather <laughs> radar. Uh, and you've done that in campaigns like Relampago and Vortex South, the, or Vortex. I would say, which we're going to talk about a bit later. Vortex and I, too, and yes. I, and I guess a Vortex 2, going to talk all about that. But why are you such a, uh, a firm believer in that notion? Oh, I, I personally, I love being on the field. Um, I like being out there and seeing 
that the data coming in is the data that I want to be seeing coming in. Um, I like being able to, you know, switch things sometimes on the fly. Um, but again, I just kind of like seeing that I'm getting, you know, being where I want to be right. <laughs> in a particular storm um, to sample it. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with Dr. Karen Kasiba, and she is an atmospheric scientist at the Center for Severe Weather Research in Boulder, Colorado. Ironically, the name might sound familiar to the truest of Weather Geeks fans. If you go back to the television version of the show, Karen was the first ever Geek of the Week. <laughs> so you have a little place in Weather Geeks and Weather Channel history. So congratulations on that. Thanks. Yeah, that was really fun. That's fun. I think we may, maybe we should consider a Geek of the Week on the podcast. I've got to talk to the producers about that. But really was neat to have you. And, you know, that first guest of the show, the TV version of the show, was Dr. Chuck Doswell. And very tornado-focused show. So it was certainly appropriate. So I'm, I'm glad we're now circling back and now have you on a, as a guest on Weather Geeks. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. So let's kind of continue this conversation Talk about the deployment. I mean, you take these radars around the world or to different parts of the country. Um, what's a typical deployment like in terms of sort of step A to step Z in that process? Uh, um, <laughs> in some ways, there's, there's a no typical there. deployment. Yeah, no. <laughs> I was trying to think. I'm like, what is typical? Um, I mean, typical is there's a lot of work that goes on the front end of these deployments, um, you know, from scientists and myself and other people in the facility designing the deployments, um, you know, making sure that we could actually do what's being proposed for the science, that it makes sense, that it's feasible. Um, you know, so for example, in Argentina, um, the roads network there was different than the United States. The road quality is different than the United States. <laughs> so we had to evaluate, you know, how we, how we park our radars um, in Argentina. Um, and then there's a lot of just getting radars ready. I mean, people, you know, there's months of, you know, prep to get radars ready to go out in the field and test it. Um, but then once you're out in the field, it really depends on the project. Um, so some of them, um, so for tornado projects, a lot of times when we're trying to do low-level wind stuff, we're constantly moving. Um, so we spend, you know, all of our time jacking around back and forth, storms and stuff like that. Um, for something like Relampago, um, basically we put the radars somewhere for three or four hours and they collected data. Um, and then there's other projects where, you know, we put them on mountaintops and, you know, people are snowmobiling up to them every day to operate them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. So you, you, you have these Doppler, I mean, if, by the way, if you've seen any of the shows that you know, your colleague Josh Worman is on, you will see these mobile Doppler radars uh, riding around on the back of these big trucks. Uh, and they, for tornado research, and we're going to talk about more than tornadoes, but <laughs> they allow us to get some sort of unprecedented speeds in tornadoes. I know there have been other attempts to try to assess the dynamics or the structure of these storms uh, by placing mobile um, instruments in the pathway. Uh, but you get pretty close in these trucks with your Doppler, your mobile Doppler radar or Dow Doppler on wheels, and you can get the structure. So 
for the Weather Geeks listeners, tell us how a Doppler radar gets the wind information in the first place and then how you can utilize that in, in, in uh, experiments like Vortex to help move our research and knowledge ahead. Right. Um, so, yeah, so Doppler radar, um, I mean, simply, I mean, the Radar 101 is you're sending out, you know, this pulse of microwave energy and it's hitting what's ever in the atmosphere, whether it's raindrops or grass or dust, um, and it's scattering. Some of it gets scattered back to the radar. Um, and the amount of it that gets scattered back that's, gets turned into something that we call radar reflectivity. Um, and then in terms of winds, what we get back is something called Doppler velocity. So unless the winds are blowing exactly to and from the radar, so parallel with the radar beam, that's the only time you actually get not really the true wind component, but the movement of the molecules um, or the scatterers in the air. Um, anything off that, you're only measuring a component of it. Um, so that's why it's Doppler velocity, um, not really wind velocity necessarily. Um, but there's ways of there's ways of getting wind velocity. Yeah, no, I you know I, a colleague <laughs> of mine that I worked with uh, did my PhD under uh, Peter Ray down at Florida State. I did some work with dual Doppler and triple right, Doppler right. radar, uh, which allows you to kind of get the true component of the wind. But you know it's interesting because even with the bomb cyclone that actually <laughs> caused us to have to reschedule this interview, and you know I saw people out there tweeting, uh, you know uh, radial or uh, Doppler velocities as the actual true wind from the bomb cyclone, and I had to kind of tweet and remind a few people, that's actually not the true wind, that's the radial, and it's still impressive what you're showing me, but it's actually just a component of the wind. Do you, do you see that a lot in terms of how people interpret the Doppler uh, wind information? Yeah, it depends. I mean, because you can, I mean, people sort of in the know know that, you know, if you're really getting a northerly wind or you're really measuring the component, you know, along your radar beam, you're sort of okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, yes. Um, and usually that's the strongest one anyway. <laughs> exactly. So so what about the storms, uh, I'm sorry, the various experiments that you've been in? Talk to us a little bit about what the Vortex experiments, because there's Vortex, there's Vortex <laughs> 2, there's Vortex right. Southeast. Uh, tell us a little bit about those and what, what you participated in those. What did you find? What did you learn? And why do we have them in the first place? Right. Um, so Vortex, I always like to be like, yes, I'm not that old. <laughs> I wasn't part of. Um, but Vortex 2, and then there's been projects before that and after that, um, studying tornadoes, which I've been part of. Um, and Vortex 2 was is a huge project. Um, so that's one of these projects where you have 100 investigators out in the field. I mean, we had six, seven, eight radars out there. Um, Lots of surface instrumentation. I mean, we probably had between radars and mesonets and soundings, you know, probably 50 pieces of surface instrumentation out there. Um, and the idea really for Vortex 2 was studying, well, there's multiple objectives, but some of the main objectives were uh, how do tornadoes form? <laughs> and... Yes, we what, know. Well, what's the answer to that? Let's, <laughs> let's, let's talk. This is one of those cases where I, I want to deviate and go there and geek out a little bit. Because, right. you know, there are sort of these theories that been, have been swirling around, pun intended, uh, right. on, on how tornadoes form. What's the latest thinking? Yeah, so the latest thinking, I mean, and I always, I always feel silly when I say it. I'm like, it's hard. Um, but in some ways, <laughs> it is sort of hard. Um, and there's been several theories, um, and things kind of come in and out of vogue. Um, so there are basic stuff that we know, right? I mean, we know how mesocyclones form. Um, we know the importance of needing a downdraft in these storms. Um, and we all know that most supercells, which have rotation and downdraft, don't make tornadoes. 
Um, so the big thing is, why not? So what's the difference between these rotating storms with downdrafts that make tornadoes and don't? Um, so some of it's the property of the downdraft um, is one, you know, one leading idea. Um, and that's not necessarily new. Um, Paul Markowski, um, many, many years ago, um, talked about buoyancy of the downdraft. Um, and if your downdraft is too buoyant, um, then you have a problem that you're not producing enough vorticity. Um, but if it's Let's, let me let me stop you right there. So <laughs> we'll, we'll put a pause on that and we'll okay. pick up there. But talk a little bit about what you mean when you talk about this buoyancy of the downdraft, because I think perhaps some listeners may think about buoyancy in terms of hey, uh, in meteorological world, we talk about a parcel. It's uh, warmer than surrounding air. It's rising into, so it's buoyant and rises. Or you might have a hot air balloon. If you need a more simplistic example, you, you warm that balloon. It's buoyant relative to the air it's warming into. So what are you talking about when you talk about downdraft buoyancy? Uh, in some ways, somewhat similar. I mean, in this case, we, they're not rising, so it's definitely not that kind of, I mean, exactly. it's negatively buoyant. Negatively buoyant. <laughs> so things like decape and yeah. those types of things, sure. So I just want to make right. sure, sure that our, our listeners, and so, so we're talking about sort of a negative buoyancy in, buoyancy in a sense, right? But yeah, and how much of that is actually ideal is the question. Um, right. There's sort of a, a Goldilocks number of, you know, how negatively buoyant your downdraft really should be. Um, and that implies, and this is where we're trying to learn more as scientists, I mean, that implies that there's a lot of things going on in terms of storm processes. Why are downdrafts certain temperatures and what's happening, or buoyancies, and what's happening inside the storm, whether it's thermodynamics, microphysics, which obviously feeds into the thermodynamics, um, to have these different temperatures and these different properties. And these are some of the really challenging things to study, <laughs> to get observations in, um, and to, you know, sample. Um, so that's why it's, it's a tricky question, and it keeps, you know, not being solved, but people keep slowly moving it forward. Um, I, rem I, re I remember I asked Howie Bluestein this one time on, on the TV version of the show. I'm going to ask it to you as well. I think <laughs> I've asked it to other tornado experts as well, like uh, Victor Gensini and Chuck Doswell. If you had, other than your Doppler radars, which I know that's really the focus of your work, if you had sort of this holy grail sort of measurement that you needed to really advance or that question or move the answers of that question forward, what would you say we need? Um, I would say we would need above-ground thermodynamics okay. um, in and near the storm. Um, that's something that we're lacking um, because it's challenging and people, again, are trying to you know, move this forward with different types of observations. Um, but that integrated with um, radar observations, including dual polarization radar observations. Right. And, and, and let's, let's kind of geek out on that for a moment because the National Weather Service recently, and I say recently, in the last several years, upgraded its Doppler radar, its 88D radar network to a dual polarization uh, radar system. Talk about what dual polarization means and, and why, why it, it's moving us forward, not so much just in uh, severe storm analysis, but even in some other areas too, uh, in terms of frozen precipitation identification and debris balls, et cetera. Yeah, no, I mean, dual pole is great. And I think, I mean, we, there's still so much to learn with it. Um, so I, even though <laughs> they've been, you know, the 88 days have been upgraded semi-recently. I mean, I think it's something that's still getting pushed forward and people really are trying to understand um, how the dual pole stuff uh, actually relates to microphysics um, and hydrometers that we're observing. Uh, but basically, um, 
back in the day, <laughs> um, and still radar is still trans. You could either transmit, so you're sending out a pulse of energy with your radar, and you can either have that pulse of energy be horizontally polarized or vertically polarized. So it could either be in the horizontal plane or the vertical plane. Um, and traditionally, radars were just sending out the pulse of energy in the horizontal plane. Uh, so what you got back was things that are scattering back from that horizontal plane of energy that was sent out. Uh, but what radars do now, what a lot of radars do now, is they send out both a vertical and a horizontal polarized signal. Um, and what that tells you then is it gives you information about, you know, not just the horizontal plane of something, but the vertical. Um, so instead of, you know, saying something's wide, you could say something's tall and wide, uh, which, you know, for hydrometeors, um, that's very useful um, in terms of identifying, you know, shapes. Um, there's other things, how these signals are correlated to one another. Um, so whether or not your return from your horizontal is correlated to your return from your vertical. Um, and you could slice and dice these in <laughs> an inf not an infinite number of ways, but a lot of different ways. Um, and they tell you, again, just different properties of what the signal's propagating through or what the shape of um, the stuff that the signal's propagating through. Yeah, and this and is, you can infer from that. Exactly. And it's been a really helpful for uh, distinguishing where the rain snow lines may be right. in winter weather events or in the case of the correlation coefficient that you were talking about. Uh, it's not a, a predictive signal, but it's diagnostic in the fact that the correlation coefficient can identify what, what we have come to know as the debris balls or the debris ball signature when a tornado is happening. And I, I, I noticed I tried to avoid, say, when a tornado is on the ground, because that's actually <laughs> one of my pet peeves, because by definition, a tornado means it's on the ground. On the ground, right. <laughs> but uh, I, I, but I, uh, I, I think that this dual pole, this raises a question. Do the, do the DAOs, the Doppler on wheels that you use, are they dual pole systems or just Doppler? No, they are dual pole. Um, okay. They're actually sort of a fun, fancy dual pole. Yes. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you want to know more. No, um, but they are. They're, they're oh, I do want to know more. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah, so, um, so they're dual pole and they have a bunch of different things that they could do. Um, so one of the things is that um, when you're scanning with a dual pole, some of the dual pole parameters, you need to scan slowly um, in order to get uh, enough independent samples. Um, so what we do to get around that is that we send out uh, two X-band frequencies at once, or quasi at once, um, which are separated by a certain amount. So we get back independent samples that way. And we're able to scan 50 or so degrees per second, which means that we could complete one 360 in about seven seconds. Um, and other dual pole radars, um, a couple can do that for other fancy reasons, but most can't. <laughs> um, the other thing we could do is we could, um, and this is sort of a little known or not quite as used except for probably people who really, really do microphysics, um, is that we could transmit um, in one channel um, at 45, so typical dual pole 45. And then the other channel we could just transmit in one polarization, so for example, H. Um, and then we get back uh, what we call cross pole products. Um, so it opens up a whole new world of <laughs> different types of uh, you know, correlations and relationships that you could look at um, in that sense. And one of those being uh, something called LDR, uh, which yeah. again, it's sort of something people are looking at, um, but it's not, <laughs> not quite at the forefront of all these studies yet. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I teach a radar meteorology at the University of Georgia, and I, I rarely bring up LDR. Right. I bring up <laughs> some of the I bring up some of the more common. Um, I, I yeah. do mention it, but yeah, you're right. That's really getting into some very advanced uh, polarization radar meteorology there. 
And we also we also transmit since we have two frequencies, we have two transmitters, um, and they're pretty high powered. Um, so that also <laughs> that also is good for um, both some penetration of the storm, but also helping with uh, clear air return, um, which also has interesting features in it as well. Uh, pre-storm, for example. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Dr. Karen Kasiba, who is an expert on all things severe weather, mobile Doppler radars, and was the first ever Geek of the Week on the television version of Weather Geeks. Uh, thank you for joining us. I, you know, Karen's been involved in various field campaigns. We were talking earlier about Vortex. She's been involved in uh, one called the Plains Elevated Convection at Night, or Pecan, or Pecan, depending on where. <laughs> Where you're from. Uh, she's involved in the tornado wind, tornadic winds in situ and radar at low levels, twirl, uh, Ontario winter lake effect systems, owls. That's where I want to land on owls <laughs> because you've not only studied severe storms with your Doppler radars, but you've studied lake effect snow. Uh, how do those two come together? Um, sort of some of the same problems. I mean, really with, you know, mobile radars, the issue is you want to get really close to what you're studying because you're not resolving it any other way with any other radar. Um, so lake effect snow um, sort of has some of the same fun issues is that there's a lot of really cool things happening in lake effect snow bands. Um, and on Lake Ontario in particular, the radar coverage, the ADAD radar coverage is um, quite bad. Um, so you don't actually capture these storms very well, um, either because you're topping you're at the top of the storm, um, or you're just far away from it. So there's a lot of interesting research that came out. That these snow bands um, basically have mesocyclones in them, um, so sort of water spouty type things. Um, and one of the questions, or at least one of the questions I was involved um, with answering and caring about, um, is how many of these storms actually have these circulations in them, and what are the impacts of these circulations, uh, both on the band structure of these lake effect snow bands and how much precipitation um, that they're producing. So there's a lot of, th I mean, I feel like anything, you could turn your radar on anything, and you're like, yes, cool. Yeah, I think that's, that's, I think that's really interesting, and I, mean, I think I've, I've learned something today because I wasn't familiar with these um, mesocyclones uh, in the lake effect snow events. I mean, I've certainly uh, looked at mesocyclones and, and, and teach about them as it relates to other sort of, you know, I guess, mesoscale type of uh, events that we right. see, dry lines and other things. But that, that's really interesting that, that, that that's been sort of identified. Can, can you tell, just tell, tell our, uh, you mentioned they're kind of water spotted. These are really small scale circulations, these meso with an I. You heard, heard Karen mention mesoscale or mesocyclones earlier, which is sort of a rotating supercell updraft. Uh, but we're talking about meso or mesocyclones now. I, I want to kind of sort of anchor on that for a second because that's a very weather geeky term there. So. <laughs> Dig deeper on what these mesocyclones have taught us or what we know about them. Yeah, sometimes I'm not even sure if these terms, I feel like we just make them up. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're not really sure what scale this is. It's kind of miso-y. Yeah, exactly. Well, what does miso mean? I mean yeah. So most people sort of know what meso scale or meso, <laughs> right, right. meso, but miso, what's that? 
But yeah, I yeah, meso scale or sorry, meso scale. I mean, that's sort of the tornado scale that you're talking about. Um, so they're a kilometer or so in diameter, um, and yeah, I mean, that's sort of the tornado scale type circulation, but not forming in the same way and more often than not, not having the same type of wind speeds as a tornado would have. Yes. Um, and like you had mentioned earlier, I mean, they're not unique actually to lake effect snow bands. Um, these are probably pretty similar to what people are seeing in dry lines, um, and, you know, convergence lines um, off the coast and land breeze, you know, type circulations. Are these the um, type, are they, are, are, this, this is giving me, a, a, you just made me think of something, because there are tornadoes that happen that are non-supercell tornadoes, the types of right. things we often see in Florida, where I, you know, when, when I was at Florida State, or, you know, sometimes in water spouts, or are these meso or mesocyclones sort of the parent circulations that lead to these non-supercell type tornadoes, or is that something different? No, those are actually the same thing. Um, so, they're the same circulation. And again, these actually do have a lot of similarities and they're on the same scale as these non-supercell um, tornadoes um, or water spouts. Uh, they form probably in the same type of way where you get a lot of convergence and sort of a shearing instability. Um, but, and again, this is <laughs> preliminary kind of talking, not necessarily <laughs> total in-depth here. Um, but a lot of the warmer weather stuff, um, you're working usually with a lot more instability um, in these convergence-type situations um, and a lot more updraft <laughs> that spans much more of the depth of the atmosphere. So in lake effect snow, um, you know, when you start seeing cape values of 100 and something, you're really excited. Right. Um, <laughs> Which wouldn't be the case in any sort of warm season event. Um, and lake effect snow, too, is pretty shallow. I mean, you're talking, you know, two, three, four kilometers, maybe. Yeah, and you've heard uh, Karen and I mentioned CAPE a couple of times, convectively available potential energy. It's just a measure that meteorologists look at to see how uh, the likelihood that if you get a parcel of air to rise, it's going to keep rising on its own, essentially. Now, I want to kind of pivot <laughs> to a discussion of your experience as someone that likes to go into the field. Is there one field program or experience or storm that stands out in your mind as either a favorite or an <laughs> OMG moment? <laughs> um, yeah, well, there's, there's a lot actually, um, but there's a few that sort of stand out in um, my head. Um, yeah, it's funny. So when I do tornado research, uh, I'm really focused on getting the data and keeping teams safe. Um, so I'm really not watching the tornado out my window or anything. I'm really looking at a radar and just thinking where it's going to go, how strong it is, where it's going to go, how strong it is, <laughs> where it's going to go, how strong it is. Um, and that's sort of my only thought ever when I'm in the field uh, with tornadoes. Um, so it's a very sort of business you know, approach to it. Um, but for hurricanes, um, I do a lot of hurricane research and there's a lot of work you do on the front end to decide where to put the radar trucks um, in a safe area uh, to measure hurricane winds as the hurricane is coming ashore. Um, but once you're actually in the hurricane, um, <laughs> you can't do anything. You're stuck there. Uh, so hurricanes have definitely been my, oh my gosh, the first one I did, I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is windy. <laughs> it, it, more, it, uh, more, more so than even being in the environment of some of these big EF three, four, five tornadoes. You, you say the hurricane yeah. one kind of shook you up literally the most? Yeah, hurricane literally shook me up the most. The first one I did, it was 2004. Um, I remember, yeah, that shook me up. I was like, oh, God, this is kind of 
I don't know what, I don't think I was really thinking about what a hurricane intercept was. Um, and then for a couple of years, I'm like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do hurricanes. <laughs> that's, I um, mean, I think that's really interesting. And I think many <laughs> listeners may be surprised at that. But here, here you have one of the top experts in the world. She goes out and sort of in the environment of these tornadic storms, which I think really people think about tornado and twister. I mean, all of the violence of a tornado, which rightfully show they, so they should. But, you know, these hurricanes, I think they're just, they're often, they're seen as big and powerful, but I think sometimes people, ah, I'm going to go and stand out in them. But you said that one really shook you up. That's interesting. Yeah. Hurricane Francis, 2004. Yeah, that would definitely be my, <laughs> but no, I mean, tornadoes too. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think, I think the difference is I'm just, you, you actually have decisions in a tornado to make. Um, so you're really just, like I said, it's sort of just business, like where, where to go, where to go, where to go, to where to go. Um, but hurricanes at a certain point, you're just like, I guess I'm just here for 13 hours. <laughs> right. Right. And that's that's the other thing I think that's a bit scary about a hurricane is, you know, they are so large scale. Yes. So, you know, you, you, you get the eye coming through and you've got the backside and then you've got all the uh, all of the other side of the storm coming through. So it's just a sustained storm. Yeah. Particularly if they're they're strong. So that that's really interesting. What, what about uh uh, what, what what are some other sort of experiences that you've had that kind of just over the years that just kind of come to mind? I'm trying to think. Um, in tornadoes, I mean, there's our famous, I always call it the NASA time, where one of us was using, you know, kilometers and meters, as we should have been, and the other one was using feet, as oh, they shouldn't yes. have been. Oh, I, yeah, and that could create problems. <laughs> that created problems. There was um, some tense radio chatter between uh, myself and my colleague. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't say who was in the right, but it was me. Um, <laughs> so I remember that because that was, that was interesting. Uh, it was a tornado after dark, so um, not, usually, not usually something we do, but it was a really weak tornado. Um, I want to I want to ask you something because you, you, you I think you do have some involvement in Vort Vortex Southeast and just recently here oh, yes. in the Southeast we've had some a very significant outbreak in Alabama and Georgia, right? Uh, and these storms in the Southeast can be a little bit different, although these are some pretty intense uh, supercells with uh, you know the type of tornadoes you would expect. But we oftentimes here in the South get these what we call QLCS type right. systems, these uh, quasi-linear convective systems that have tornadoes that spin up on them. Uh, any particular challenges from your lens as an expert on the tornadoes here in the South? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of challenges with those. And I mean, I think part of Vortex SE, you know, which is a great project, I think what the struggle is, is trying to figure out an observational strategy that works in the southeast um, because you can't take what you do in the plains and yeah like you said you can't do that in the southeast I mean you get tornadoes that form more prominently as part of these QLCSs or that form at night or that there's just so much rain around that there's just no visibility um, to what you're doing so yeah so part of the Vortex SE challenge has been trying to figure out how to deploy radars in that environment um, and that's still been an iteration process um, yeah, so we're, so dense, we're a bit more densely populated here than the yeah. Great Plains as well and that's also that creates problems on the other side of the ledger in that because we are so densely populated here in the southeast and some of the structures and mobile homes are more prevalent now from a socioeconomic standpoint in this region uh, you often see significant loss of life and property as we saw that in fact uh, uh, if you're listening to this make sure you check out the Weather Geeks podcast uh, that we did with uh, Dr. Walker Ashley, where he discussed that recent event. So it's, I was curious what your perspective on these types of Southeast systems were. 
Yeah, no, I mean, like I said, it's very challenging. I mean, I didn't even mention trees and hills and, you know, all that, too. Um, and, yeah, some of these storms, I mean, again, if you don't, not that you should go out and check that you have visibility, but it's, you know, hard when you don't have any visibility. Um, it's hard when you're densely populated. There's forest. Um, and also, these QLCS tornadoes, they don't have the same type of lead time as supercell tornadoes. Um, so you don't have the same, I mean, this last outbreak, uh, I think the weather industry did a fantastic job warning and getting out information, um, but it's still just a challenging environment to work in. Yeah, it really it really is. That's something that I've been struggling with because we, we knew for days that that, was, that environment was going to experience those types of storms, but yet to someone that it comes up on them that day or they weren't paying attention or didn't get the message, it feels like to them it came without warning. We often hear, see that headline when we're driving, it's, we're, as meteorologists, I'm like, no, there's plenty of warning. There were days of warning, but, you know, it's all about relative perspective. So I've been struggling with, you know, that from a messaging standpoint. Right. And I think the other, I mean, I think the other challenge, and again, I'm not, you know, studying the socioeconomic impact, so <laughs> I say that with all caveats. You know, one of the challenges is, I think, is that, you know, the warning and these should get warned. I mean, I'm not saying they shouldn't. Is you know, people remember the time that nothing happened, um, and there's sort of that false alarm rate problem um, that people I think can get into too, or get complacent with. Um, and I mean, I, I, you can understand why I think. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, we've we've talked to. Uh uh, Jen Henderson and, uh, and a colleagues uh, a couple of weeks ago, I'm sorry, a couple of months ago on some of these very topics on a podcast. So very challenging problem that our colleagues in the social sciences world are, are, are studying and we, we support them. want to pivot one last time. I'm unfortunately <laughs> running out of time, but this has been one of my favorite podcasts because I just love to geek out with fellow colleagues on these topics. Rumor has it that there's a prize-winning bridge on display. <laughs> back at your house or at your home. What's that about? And did you know that as a young age? And, you know, I, I suspect I know the answer to this. Did you know at a young age that you wanted to study meteorology? No, I didn't. Um, I definitely did not know that. But I, I think it was the right choice. And I think actually the field and the way that I'm studying it, too, it just meshes with my personality. Um, well, <laughs> I'm probably the, not what, master of anything, but... Well, what's the bridge then? What's the prize? Oh, the bridge is it was a bridge building contest um, that you bring build like these balsa wood bridges, um, and the one that I built one year finally won. Oh wow! <laughs> it so didn't that, break. I, I, I thought I thought the notes were taking me down the road of that it was a weather connection, but there was no, no weather connection at no all. No weather connection. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> Very interesting. I also know that you're a certified wilderness first responder. What's that? Um, basically, I know basic CPR and basic uh, medical stuff for um, being out in the wilderness or being out in some of these challenging situations. Um, we often deploy, I talked about deploying in hurricanes. Um, we had deployed our trucks on top of mountains. Um, there's a lot of times that we're in situations where we're not that close um, to getting any sort of emergency help. Uh, so it's good to, good to at least know the basics um, for my colleagues out there. <laughs> what, do you, what do you like to do when you're not traveling all over the place studying storms? Uh, 
just travel all over the place. So just just the travel part. <laughs> just the travel part. Yeah, you sound like my daughter. She would have probably answered that way too. And now, one of the things that I find most impressive about you, in addition to your outstanding scholarly work and contributions to the field, um, you're 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 a woman in a largely STEM field. Uh, what advice would you give to the other young women out there that can, are considering a career in this field or any STEM field? Um. I mean, I always feel like, you know, stick with what you like. And it's funny, I saw this Mr. Rogers thing a while ago (laughs) that said sort of find the helpers. Um, I feel like I've always been lucky or maybe it's just ended up that way that I've usually I'm working with really good people. Um, I have really good mentors and the teams I'm working with or the teams, you know, myself or my mentors are putting together um, are pretty solid. And I enjoy and I enjoy that. Um, So I think it's sort of finding your niche, but it's not just finding your niche. It's kind of finding your finding your team or your people. <laughs> now, if, any, if, any, if anybody wants to, because I mean, I think you've, you're a fascinating scientist, and I think perhaps some people that are listening may want to follow up or know more about you. Is there a website or a social media site where they can learn more about you? Um, I'm pretty erratic, but I do have Twitter. <laughs> What's your Twitter um, handle? I think it's just my name. Okay. <laughs> Karen so. underscore Casimo. Yeah. Okay. Um, Again, I'm pretty erratic with that, but I yeah, mean, people de- could always email me too. Yeah, definitely check check her out on Twitter or, or check out the Center for Severe Weather Research in Boulder, Colorado, because unfortunately we have to end the podcast uh, here. Karen, thank you so much for joining us You're on the welcome. WeatherGeeks podcast. I've really enjoyed this discussion. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it as well. And that's all we have time for right now. Thank you for listening to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.